Acts chapter 16. If you have a Bible or a device, (laughs) open it with me if you would. Part two of three parts where we're looking at the church at Philippi and Paul and uh, Silas who had come out of Antioch on his second missionary journey. Uh, They had gone through the Cilician gates, remember, over the Taurus Mountains, 11,000 feet and uh, hiked on through into Galatia where they met up with Timothy at Lystra and uh, took him along and then uh, being prevented by the Holy Spirit from sharing the gospel in Asia and then uh, kept by the Holy Spirit again from going into Bithynia to the north. They ended up in Troas where they met a doctor by the name of Luke and hopping on a boat there, they sailed from there to uh, Neapolis, which was a a small coastal town, but it was also the seaport for the larger city of Philippi in northern Greece, but is now northern Greece. It was called Macedonia back then. And and they had come to Macedonia where they went down on the Sabbath. Now remember, this is Gentile territory. This this is, uh, there was no synagogue in in the city. There evidently were not 10 men, 10 Jewish males which was the requirement for them to found a synagogue and uh, to get that going. So the four men, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, went down to the river to a place that was designated for prayer. Uh, On the Sabbath day, on, on a Saturday, they went down there and there was a group of ladies meeting down there and they engaged a woman by the name of Lydia. And Lydia was evidently pretty well to do. She was a seller of purple. We looked at that last week and, and, and that, that was a very, very expensive dye and very difficult to manufacture. And so uh, associated with royalty and all of that. Well, Lydia had, she was a, she was a God fearer. She understood and she connected with the God of Israel, but she wasn't a convert to Judaism but she was, she was one of the people that was kind of on the periphery. And as Paul shares the gospel with her, she comes to faith in Christ. She gives her life to Christ. And at that moment, she and her whole family got baptized, or her whole household. And then we wrapped up last week looking at after she had done that, it says that she begged Paul uh, and Timothy and Silas and Luke to come and to stay at her house. Evidently, again, she had a large place to live, a place that would accommodate these men. We don't know about her family. There's actually nothing really known about her other than the interaction they had there because she disappears off the pages of scripture. We don't know if she went to be with the Lord or if she moved back to Thyatira where she was from, which is uh, on the other side of the Aegean Sea. We, we just don't know. So that's the background here. And uh, as these guys go and they stay at Lydia's house, we know she must have been hungry for the Lord. I, the only thing I can think of is that she's like, please come and stay with me. I don't think it was because she had a social need. I think it's because she had a spiritual need. And she wanted to be around these men who had given her this wonderful, wonderful news, the good news of the gospel of Christ. And, and had converted to Christianity, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and now she's on fire for the Lord. We saw last week that she was the first convert in Europe, and that her household becoming the first church in Europe. Again, the church not being the building, we'll see here today that that when they gather, they go to the place of prayer, and that's, they didn't say they went to church, but they essentially were doing what we do when we go to church. They were going to gather together with other believers. But the point in all of that is is that they gathered, they got together. And it's thought, most scholars think that that the four men spent probably up to a year at Lydia's house. That during that time, the the Philippian church would have grown and grown. Uh, Perhaps when they met, they didn't meet at the, the river any longer. We don't know how big the area was. We know that the river right outside of Philippi it's a fairly small river. It's not like the, you know, it's not like <laughs> the Willamette or something. But we don't know. We do know, though, that they continued to gather and that the Philippian church would be very, very dear to Paul's heart going forward. They would actually be the only church that would 
send support to him on a number of occasions going, uh, going out from there. Now, because he had this bond, uh, we see also we see evidence in Philippians chapter 4. That's the letter that wrote, Paul wrote back to this church while he was in prison in Rome. It's one of the prison epistles. Philippians, by the way, the most joyful letter in all of the New Testament, written by a guy that's chained to a Roman guard at that point. He writes back and he acknowledges their generosity after he and Silas and Timothy had gone to Thessalonica. Pretty sure that Luke stayed here, stayed on in Philippi because they pick him up on the way back. We'll get to that in a later study. About 10 years after this, uh, the Philippians would send a guy by the name of Epaphroditus uh, to Rome while Paul was in prison there, and they would send a gift along with him, and both would be a great blessing to Paul during his imprisonment. He had, his imprisonment was sort of in two parts. He was under house arrest in a rented home for the first part, where he was chained to a Roman guard, a Praetorian guard, uh, and then released for a time and then rearrested. But at that point, though, taken to the Mamertine prison. I, I've mentioned before, been there, horrible place. <laughs> Just I, you know, I, I could rabbit trail on that, but I, I want to cover some ground this morning. But it, he would be essentially on death row at that point, And he would be awaiting execution where he would have his head removed on the steps of the forum right around the corner from the prison. So that's the background. The Philippian church would become very, very important to Paul and uh, to these guys. And they would think of them often. Paul would write to them. They would send support forward for him uh, going forward. So that brings us to verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer, and this is, again, this is not, this is the same word that's used for Lydia when she went to the place of prayer. Uh, it's called the prosahik, uh, hard for me to pronounce <laughs> language, but it was a place that was designated for prayer. Uh, it says that as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now, there's some really interesting things going on here, and I want to dig away at it for a while. We're going to spend some time developing this because it's important that we understand just what's happening. When it says the spirit of divination, if we think about somebody who understands divination, I think about a guy with a divining rod. You know, he's going around finding water when he's witching a well. It's not what's going on here. Actually, the Greek word is pythos. And what it's talking about is this girl had what was known in Greek circles as a python spirit. Uh, I'm going to read something to you because I want you to understand what Luke is implying. Luke understood Greek culture. He was a Greek guy. All right. And so when he says that she had a, a, a spirit of pythos, the people would connect with what that meant. Uh, Python was a name given to a mystical spirit associated with the oracle of Delphi in Greece. Greek mythology believed that when a priestess inhaled the vapors that arose from an opening in the ground at Delphi, she was actually breathing vapors from the rotting body of the serpent, which had been slain by the god Apollo. All right. They believed these vapors somehow induced a drug trance, which allowed the god Apollo to possess the spirit of the priestess and then speak through her. People went to Delphi and paid money to receive guidance from this oracle. And by telling us the slave girl had the spirit of Python, Luke is explaining that in a manner simil similar to the oracle at Delphi, she would fall into a trance and channel a voice from the spiritual spirit realm. Clearly, clearly, this is a demonic manifestation. By coming to her, uh, the people of Philippi believed they were receiving guidance from the gods without having to travel 150 miles south to Delphi. So that's just to develop the background here. When, when, when we read that she had a spirit of divination, there's a lot more going on than we would think about or look at on the surface. All right. And that's going to play a part going forward. By the way, as I read this and as I looked at, at this stuff, it reminded me of some very aberrant practices in some circles today. Uh, I remember reading about some <laughs> some goofball 
guys that would go lay on the graves of, of, uh, of dead preachers so that they could suck the anointing out of it. And it was like just bizarre practices. Uh, we'll talk about that, not that specifically, but we'll talk about that whole thing later on as we go. Uh, because truly, folks, if you don't stand for something, <laughs> you're prone to fall for anything. And there's a lot of people that fall into these false doctrinal stances that can be very, very detrimental and dangerous. Verse 17, so the girl followed Paul and us. When Luke writes us, he's talking about he and Timothy and Silas. So the four guys there. And she cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now on the surface, that looks pretty good. They're servants of the most high God and they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Yay team. Not so fast. The word cried out here, it means, it it wasn't that she was calling after them. It means that she was screaming at them. And she was screaming out in in this demonic voice, these words following these guys around. Uh, Again, clearly satanic, occultic. Uh, And they're one of a couple of things going on here because of the things that she's saying, they had a ring of truth It could be that she was claiming spiritual superiority over the men. Uh, There are times where people will assert sort of an arrogant spiritual superiority before they start introducing the heresy or the bad bad food. And, And we need to be careful. We need to be discerning. Talk about that too as we go along. That could have been what was going on, or it could have been that she was simply a sycophant. Do you know what a sycophant is? It's a person who employs flattery towards someone important in order to gain advantage. Uh, And that could have been what she was doing. Her her demon's ploy was to identify with them as though the girl possessed a similar power as they in order to find greater validation with the people. I'm one of you. You guys are doing this whole thing. However, there's a major difference here you got to remember, again, we're talking, she's talking, these guys are in the midst of an audience of Greeks. They're not around Jews who understand the God most high, the most high God. In the, in the average Greek's mind, the same term was used, but it was used of Zeus, not Yahweh or Jehovah. And so this would be very confusing for the people around them because these guys are talking about the God of Abraham and he's talking about the God of the Greek or she's talking about the God of the Greek. She's talking about Zeus. And so again, very confusing. And uh, we know that, that uh, God is not the author of confusion, but we do know who is. Uh, regardless of what her motives were, we know that they are <laughs> clearly evil. Uh, Verse 18, and this she did for many days. That that surprises me because it's like, why didn't Paul just say, would you just stop? She did this for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, this is after many days, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And when it says that very hour, it means immediately. That this she is obviously in the feminine. And when he commands the demon to come out, it says he, the demon, came out immediately. Now, there's an important example for you and I regarding how we are to conduct and engage in spiritual warfare. Is spiritual warfare real? Oh, you bet it is. You bet it is. And and if you just think that Satan is a guy with a red suit and a pointy tail and horns, you are woefully inadequate to engage in spiritual warfare. Paul doesn't immediately rebuke her. I I want you to notice that. I think it's amazing that he doesn't. (laughs) I tried to put myself in that place and it'd be like, yeah, well, about the second time around, I'd be telling her (laughs) what I thought. But he doesn't do that. Why? I believe that it was because he was waiting for, uh, I like the King James word, the, the unction of the Holy Spirit to engage her. Folks, we, dealing with the supernatural, uh, the miraculous, including dealing with demonic forces, is never initiated by man. 
I'll tell you what, you want to engage the God of this world in the arm of the flesh, it is a losing proposition every time. There's great power there. Is it, it, well, I'll get to that at the end. Again, I want to jump ahead. But uh, the point is, is that Paul waits. And he's, he chooses, even though he's real, this is, this girl is really annoying. She's really getting on his nerves. Um, <laughs> practically speaking, obviously, on a human level, <laughs> Paul had had enough. Spiritually, he waited. And I think it's also worth noting that he doesn't deal with the girl. He deals with the spirit within the girl. He deals with the evil spirit. He goes right to the source of what her problem was. It says in verse 19, but when her masters, plural, evidently she, a slave girl had more than one master, they saw that their hope for profit was gone, that they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, we don't know what happened with Luke and Timothy. We know that they're around, but evidently they weren't part of the fracas here because they did not get arrested. Don't know what's going on there, but we do know that Paul and Silas do. And these guys, they are hopping mad. (laughs) They don't like the fact that they just lost their way to make money on this girl. The spirit, she's been delivered. She's clean. She's free of this demonic oppression, this demonic possession that had been, we don't know how long it had been in her, but now she's been delivered. So they took him to the marketplace. The, The Greek word for that is the agora, and I remember when I was in Rome, uh, I would go to the marketplace every morning and I would get up and go get fresh food. Uh, I stayed in an old place that was built in the, during the uh, Middle Ages and, and, and would walk into, it was called the Piazza. And it was a central plaza. And, and the towns, the cities in those days would have a central plaza. Uh, back when they were walled cities, it would be by the city gates, and that's where they did business and where they adjudicated legal matters and all of that. But by this time, not a walled city, at least not that we know of. Philippi was uh, not walled, but it did have a central marketplace, and that's where they did business. That's where they, that's where they would take people who had been committed some crime or offense. So they take them to the authorities. Um, I think that it's also interesting here. Notice that the, the girls' masters, they don't give any consideration to her condition. There's no mention of that. Uh, their motive was money and power. And when that was taken away, the girl wasn't any use to them. So think about it, folks. How often do we see that kind of thing played out in our world today? Maybe not with a demon-possessed girl, but... Uh, how often do we see a narrative put forth which feigns concern over one thing or another? Yet behind that narrative is an evil intent or a lust for power, a lust for money. It happens all the time. We are exposed to it all the time. Deception is rampant in our culture. And uh, if there's ever been a time where we need to be discerning, it's now. There is so much going on out there. Uh, these guys, they weren't interested in helping the people or the girl. Their response to Paul made that clear. Uh, enough said on that. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could take that drum and beat it for a long time. But as a result, they dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities. Verse 20, and they brought them to the magistrates uh, and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Now, I want you to understand the significance of, of what's going on here, this particular statement. Again, there's a lot behind it that we don't see on the surface just looking at the text. Um, we're told in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, Paul's in Corinth. Right? He leaves, when he leaves Philippi, he goes to the west to a city called Thessalonica, which is actually the capital of Macedonia. And he runs into trouble there. So he goes, drops down to Berea. And then he goes from there down to Athens. And then from there over to Corinth, which is about 50 miles west of Athens. While he's at Corinth, he writes back and he writes a number of letters. Uh, 
But while he's at Corinth, he runs into a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who he actually takes to Ephesus, and they end up being part of the church there with Timothy. That's a whole different story we'll get to when we get to that point in Acts. But Priscilla and Aquila had been expelled from Rome. The reason that they had been kicked out was that Emperor Claudius, anti-Semitism was on the rise at this part of the first century. And so what Claudius did is he said, Jews, go. By the way, not only are you not, not welcome here in Rome, you are absolutely prohibited from proselytizing Roman citizens to cause them to convert to Judaism. All right? So it was against the law to proselytize. We would look at it as evangelize. And, and so what these guys are doing... Again, they're not, they're not taking this matter to the authorities based on what had actually happened. They make up a story about it and they present it to the authorities because remember uh, that Philippi is a Roman colony. We talked about that last week. It had the designation Eus Italicum, which meant as though it were Roman ground. Okay, all of the laws that applied in Rome applied here to if you if it was a colonial status and they had that designation Eus Italicum it was as though it was actually in the city of Rome you could you might as well have been standing there it wasn't the same designation as the the the, the captive states that, that were under the Roman Empire it wasn't the same designation like in Israel so the statements they make are patently false on a number of levels they say nothing about the girl. They say nothing about their dealings. They, they don't talk about Paul's interaction with her. None of that. Because it wouldn't carry any weight with the authorities. But what they do, they complain to the authorities and they complain that these men are Jews, and that they're breaking the law and troubling the people with Jewish doctrine. You see, they're appealing to them based on what their current law was. You see how they twisted it? You see how... I am so resisting. <laughs> Do you see how the narrative gets twisted? Do you see how one thing gets put forth, but that's really not what's going on? Folks, that's not new. It's been happening for thousands of years. We have a perfect example of that here in the pages of Scripture where men take and they twist things for their own gain, for their own deal. And here they're acting purely out of spite because nothing they do is going to restore this girl to profitability for them. They just don't like Paul and Silas at this point, and they want to make sure that they pay. Paul would reflect back on this when he wrote to the Thessalonians. Again, he wrote First Thessalonians, he wrote from Corinth a year or two later. And in First Thessalonians 2, 2, he says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, this is where they're spitefully treated, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So he's saying, we had a lot of trouble at Philippi. And these guys were so spiteful with us. There was no gain in them taking them before the authorities, but they wanted to be sure they got theirs. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Jesus predicted that this would happen to them. And it's not inconceivable that it could happen to you or me. We live in an evil world. We live in an evil culture, a culture that's rooted in deception, as I mentioned. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceed exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. The point in this is understand the extent to which people will go in rejecting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. People will go to great lengths, which it, 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 it always kind of amazes me because the gospel is about good things. There's nothing better than to understand that my eternal disposition was, was taken care of at the cross. There's nothing better than to know that the Holy Spirit wants to indwell me and to empower me to live a life that's actually worth living, that counts. And yet Jesus, uh, well, John says in the Gospel of John, he says that 
that men were repulsed by the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil and they loved darkness more than they love light. We see that a lot. Again, I, and folks, we've got to know, we've got to know that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding and insight if we ask, if we're seeking to have discernment in these areas. Verse 22, then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates, they were called praetors. You heard about the praetorium when Jesus was taken to the praetorium. That was where the praetors did their business in Israel. But here, these guys, the magistrates, are in the town square. They tore up their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Okay, I'm going to definitely take a hike here. <laughs> we're going we're to go on a rabbit trail because I think there's some very fascinating things that have relevance in our world today. Uh, there were officers that were assigned to the magistrates known as lictors. All right? The lictors, were, they, they, they attended to and protected the predators, the, the magistrates. And they used a weapon called the fasces to execute sentences on offenders. Now, either by flogging or by, uh, they could go from as little as flogging all the way up to decapitating people who were guilty of an offense. Rome was harsh, cruel. Now, this first slide I've got, it shows a lictor. It also shows the fasces in the middle there. Uh, and the fasces was a bundle of 12 birch canes bound together with leather with an embedded axe. And these lictors carried this weapon around because, again, they had a whole range of punishments they could execute with it. It came to symbolize the authority of the government of Rome. It also became a symbol of government power down through the ages. The back of the Liberty Dime has a fasces on it. Abraham Lincoln, in, his, in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., his hands rest on a fasces on each side. Uh, uh, to me, I just think it's, it's remarkable that these, these remnants of the Roman Empire come through to us today. The third slide here is, uh, that's a picture of Benito Mussolini. In Italy, in World War II, or prior to that, he, he came to power and he dreamt of being the guy that, that brought Rome back. And if you see, look on the wall next to him, Sephasis. He introduced a form of government called fascism. And that's where the word fascist or fascism comes from. Okay? So, and when you hear people talking about fascists today, again, that's part of the narrative out there. Oh, your people are fat. No, you got to understand that was a very harsh form of government, totalitarian, very extremely conservative. Yes, but but totalitarian nonetheless. And <laughs> you got, it doesn't using the fasces as a symbol of government power doesn't automatically make that whoever that group was that uses a symbol. It doesn't automatically make them fascists. In Mussolini's case, yes. But that doesn't mean that Lincoln was a fascist because he's got these things in the Lincoln Memorial or that our dimes were somehow evil. It's a sign of government authority. The point in all of this is, <laughs> think about it, folks. The world <laughs> hasn't seen anything like Rome since Rome. Uh, remarkable. But now it will when the church is taken out of the way, when the church is raptured, when the, we're taken out of here. And the Antichrist raises up and Rome is revived. It's clear in the pages of scripture. It's clear in the pages of the prophetic word that that will come back around. Interesting too, talking about that, the Jews method of flogging was 40 lashes minus one. And they thought they were being generous, I guess, because 40 was considered to be enough to kill a man. So they backed off at 39, and I read that, I thought about that. I thought, oh, how thoughtful. <laughs> the Romans were not so thoughtful. They didn't have, there wasn't a prescribed formula. They would often beat people to death. 
pressure from the rods. Understand, once you understand what this did, these rods, now when the rod hit, it would splay the skin outward, which would rip the skin. It would tear the skin. And it would also tear all the blood vessels under the skin. And so uh, it would cause the flesh as well as the blood vessels below to tear and rupture. The result would be multiple long open wounds and, and severe, severe bruising. I mean, these guys, when they got beaten with rods, it wasn't a small thing. They were severely beaten. And we read in verse 22 that the magistrates commanded that they be beaten. The tense there indicates that they kept on commanding them to be beaten. So as long as the crowd was there cheering them on because the, the crowd got worked up, that all these law-breaking Jews, they got beaten. Verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the next three slides I I have here, this is, it's showing uh, the Philippi, what is believed to be, and I want to underscore that, to be the, the, the ruins of the prison at Philippi. This first one here, slide number four, shows part of the, it would have been a, a large, larger complex than that, but that's the part that's still standing. And uh, the fifth slide shows the area off to the left of the first building we looked at. The third slide kind of shows the whole thing. It's still standing. Uh, actually, the third slide, I went on Google Earth and, <laughs> and was able to find that you know, by zooming in on the satellite and doing all of that. But the point is, is that this is what the the Philippi prison looked like. Now, I want to note a couple of things about Roman prisons. Again, uh, interesting. Remember, first, back in Acts chapter 12, when Peter was in the prison in Jerusalem, and he was freed by the angel. Remember, he was sleeping so soundly that the angel had to smack him in the side and command him to get up and get dressed and get out of here. Uh, Paraphrasing, but that's really what happened. The angel wasn't, you know, he didn't have a lot of politeness about him. But when Herod Agrippa discovered that the men, or or that Peter was gone, what did he do with the people that were guarding him? He had all 12 of them executed. They lost their lives. It was up to the jailer in this culture, under Roman rule, it was up to the jailer to be absolutely certain that the prisoners that were in his charge did not escape. The penalty was death. We're going to look at that next week. We're not going to get that far this morning. But the point is, is the jailer was, he, he was absolutely certain. He wanted to make sure that these guys didn't get away. Now, with regard to the prison itself, this particular prison and Roman prisons uh, had three compartments in them. They were divided into the three sections. The outer section was called the communitoria. And the communitoria was the place where there would be windows with bars and it would face the outside area. And there would be light and air circulation and all of that. Uh, again, it was used for less severe offenders, people that were there. We would look at it like in a jail, a holding cell in a jail in, in, our, in our day. It was not something that was <laughs> this deep, dark, dank thing. Well, the next layer in was called the intoria, or the inner toria, uh, and it had barred openings with air coming in. The, the air would circulate, but there wasn't any light. Now, the third area in the dark recesses, literally, of the prison is called the Tullianum. It was the most inner prison, and essentially, it was a dungeon. These guys got thrown in the dungeon. There would be no light in there. Uh, we're told that they, they locked their feet in the stocks, and the stocks, were st- the stocks that Rome used, were, it was like a big comb, and they would spread their feet apart as far apart as they could get them. And they would lower this comb contraption over them and then run a rod through to lock their feet in place. Hugely uncomfortable. It was actually a form of torture for these men sitting still. The only relief that they would be able to get is if they, lied, if they laid back. 
But these guys' backs had been flayed. They had been laid open. There would be no rest for these men. They would be in agony in this inner prison. It would also be a filthy place. I don't want to get too graphic. (laughs) Sunday morning, but there's no light. There would have been a stagnant stench in the air. There would be no facilities for these men in stocks. And so the place would be filled with human excrement waste. Not a good place. So that's the scene. That's where these guys got taken off to. It's into the scene that we see this, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So as Paul and Silas worshipped and prayed, the original language carries an implication that the prisoners listened intently. Okay? And that they listened with joyfulness. Now, I, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach here into interpretation, but I believe that it holds up. And remember, these guys, and we'll look at it next week, they didn't run when their chains fell off and the stocks came off. They stuck around. Every one of them stayed. And I believe that not unlike the thief on the cross, that these down and out prisoners sharing the Philippian jail with Paul and Silas, that they heard and responded to a message of God's love, God's care, and God's acceptance. Again, I'm interpreting, but there was a reason why they didn't run. There was a reason why they listened. And they listened intently as Paul and Silas began to sing their hearts out to the Lord. And they're lifting up prayers out loud and probably thanking God for the work he was doing. We don't know what their prayers were but we can be assured that it got these other inmates' attention. Uh, And we'll look at that more next week. As I looked at this, I was reminded of Psalm 42, verse 8, where we read, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Uh, That's an awesome verse. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to look at some things. Uh, some takeaways that we can just uh, chew on for a bit and perhaps the Lord will speak to you through them. The first, as I mentioned earlier, is the devil is anything but a mythological figure. He is anything but this cute little harasser. The Bible tells us he comes as an angel of light, that he looks good. He looks enticing. Those, I call them, I spent years in the advertising business and, and he comes with limited time offers and they do look good. They, they, they look, they look in tight. They look like, well, you know, I could do that. Got to keep in mind that spiritual warfare, demons, demonic activity, demonic manifestations are very real. We're exposed to them all the time. I'm convinced that very often we don't, we just don't see it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go, I was at, had a home fellowship one time. This is way back in the, in the 1980s. Uh, and I had a guy come in and he was like chasing demons around on my ceiling and stuff. And I had to tell him to stop. I was annoyed, like Paul. But the point is, is that we're not to go looking. Billy Sunday, who was the Billy Graham of the 19th century, said one time, I, I treat Satan like a fly. When he lands, I swat him. Otherwise, you can fly around all he wants. It's not going to bother me. It's important to remember that Romans chapter 8 tells us also that we operate from victory. We're not trying to get there, folks. If you belong to Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, and I pray that it is, if it's not, you can fix that. But if our lives, with our lives being hidden in Christ, Paul says we are more than conquerors. We operate from Victory. We're not trying to win. The, it's our, the battle's already been won. We, yeah, we get engaged in skirmishes and sometimes more often than not. But you've got to understand that. It's important to remember also that we don't try to do battle in the flesh. If I try to engage the enemy in, in the arm of my flesh in my, through my fallen nature, rather than through, as we saw with Paul, 
being filled with the Holy Spirit and operating from that place, I'm going to lose. Uh, I, I went through one aspect of spiritual warfare that lasted six years. I was on the phone with my pastor a lot. And, and then when God moved, and I learned a lot about spiritual warfare during that time because it looked hopeless for a long time. But when God moved, he began to reveal to me that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, became very, very important to me during that time and remain important when I'm engaged in spiritual battle. The Apostle Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, and that when, it, when you see flesh, it's a reference to our fallen or, our, or the nature of Adam, which all of us have. We, we don't walk according to the flesh. We don't war according to the flesh, is what he says. He says, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So what's he saying in that? He's saying that we take every thought captive. Where's the battlefield often? It's right between my ears. Very often, I, I, I was sharing last week about uh, I will get on a, a deal and I will start thinking about something and I will come to some wrong conclusion. And if I act on it, I'm in trouble. Folks, take every thought captive before the throne of Christ. Measure it by the word of God. Measure the things that you're going through. Hold them up to the word of God. If you don't know what the word of God says, let that be something that drives you to deeper understanding because that's where you're going to find the answers. When he says here, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, if you try to do battle in the spiritual realm and you are living outside of the will of God, you have lost before you start. Live obediently. Live a life that's consistent with God's revealed will. As you do so, you are equipped automatically to be able to wade into the spiritual realm, not in the arm of the flesh, but in the power of the spirit to do battle. If you're, if you're living outside of God's will, you're not going to be hearing from the Holy Spirit. If you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit, you're not going to discern. If you're not discerning, you're open game. Do you understand how that goes? Very, very important that we understand that spiritual warfare is real and God has set forth clear parameters, beneficial parameters in his word. Second thing I want to talk about is to be wise and discerning. There's a lot of hype out there, as I mentioned, and you don't need me to tell you that. A couple of minutes on your phone with the news or uh, looking, reading the paper or however it is you get information. We live in a time where deception is really, it's become so common that it's like a breath of fresh air when I hear somebody speaking truth. There are times where we hold our peace, yes. Paul held his peace for a while. (laughs) He he was really getting annoyed. He was getting ticked off about this girl following them around screaming at them. But when the Holy Spirit gave him charge to open his mouth and to wade in, he did. And he was effective. There's times where we must speak out and speak into a given situation, even when we know that it may cost us. I think back to when I made the decision for our church to engage in a lawsuit against the governor of the state of Oregon, the little Calvary Chapel, Newburgh. And yet God honored that. Was it tough? Yeah, I never got mail like I got then. Only time in my life I ever had a death threat. But the point is, we couldn't allow the government overreach to come into our church and tell us how we did communion. When I read that, I was like, okay, I'm done. And got with our leadership and said, you know, we need to do something about this. And we did. And we were asked to join in a couple of lawsuits after this. No, I don't want to become known as the litigious church. (laughs) We want to give people the love of Christ. Yet there is a time where we stand up against the deception. And, And that was, as a church, we did that. But there are times personally where we stand up. There are times where we have to be counted. 
And you got to know that God honors that. And, and agree or not with that stance, again, what we went through with all of that, uh, there were a number of churches that stood against us. And, and uh, I got tired of being schooled on Romans chapter 13, I'll tell you that. But the point is, we prevailed, we lost in the Supreme Court, and we knew that we would, but immediately after that, the government backed off the churches and removed all of the sanctions that the churches, the edicts that the churches were supposed to be adhering to. So it was a win from that standpoint. The bottom line is, we need to be wise. Not with just man's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 9 says this, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Keep that in mind. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and I used to have a little plaque in my house that had this, and I thought, what a nice rosy flowery thing to say. And then I realized it's actually kind of a rebuke. <laughs> but he, he says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Had those things entered into the people that Paul was dealing with in Philippi, he wouldn't have gotten drugged before the authorities. But he knew that those are spiritually discerned things. Folks, don't expect spiritual discernment from somebody in the world. It's not only that they don't understand it, they just they don't have that. There's, there's no capacity for spiritual understanding. That's why Jesus cautions, you know, there are times where, yeah, there are times where you charge out there and you go for it. There are times where you hold back because he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Understand. It's kind of a know your audience thing. You got to be plugged in. You got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit in order to, to, to get how you respond in a given situation. Spiritual blindness is real. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they cannot see. That's why we need to give them the love of Christ, even in tough circumstances. The last thing as we close, I want to just remind us that in God's economy, there is beauty in adversity. And I don't say that lightly. I know some of you are going through adverse things right now. God is moving. He is working. You may have experienced a load of adversity in your life. And yet, that doesn't mean that we like it, but it does mean that we come to a place of accepting it. Because I'll tell you what, if I've learned anything over the years, acceptance is the antithesis, it's the opposite of pain. When I'm in pain over something, usually it's because I haven't accepted that. And as I accept the circumstances that I'm in, even when they're rough, I'm able to come to a place of saying, Lord, give me a peace in the midst of these. There's beauty in adversity. We don't sign up for it, but I'll tell you what, we get signed up for it. The point in that is God doesn't always spare us from the pain. And there are beautiful, wonderful lessons to be learned in the midst of the pain. Recently, we've had a song that we've used here called Scars. This is a song that came to me after I had uh, as I was laying in a hospital bed for that month after I had my heart attack in August and, and, and virtually died uh, in the parking lot down at Lincoln City and was brought back and was so absolutely grateful. I read a few lines here from, of the lyrics from that song because I, I would listen to this in the darkness of the early morning hours and just weep before the Lord as I would wake up and worship and pray and just so grateful that God had spared my life. Uh, these are the lyrics. His darkest water and deepest pain. I wouldn't trade it for anything because my brokenness brought me to you. And these wounds are a story you'll use. Think about Paul and Silas. So I'm thankful for the scars because without them, I wouldn't know your heart. And I know they'll always tell of who you are. 
So forever I am thankful for the scars. Isn't that good? Folks, we go through things. We live in a world that, where adversity is, is kind of the norm. Whether it's personal adversity, health, could be financial, could be relational. There's a number of things that I know we deal with. I, I, I've often said, if you're not going through a trial right now, you're either just coming out of one, you're about to go into one. Because it's part of what we deal with in this life. And God never promises to keep us from the trials or from the adversity or from the pain, but he does promise to walk through those things with us. And you got to keep that in mind. Very often as a pastor, when I'm counseling somebody, uh, I will simply say, look, you've got to remember it won't always be this way. Because in, when you're in the middle of it, then it feels like that thing's just going to drag on. Take courage. Take heart. He's in control. He's at the helm. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants to just simply manage the affairs of our life as we yield those to him. Let's pray. Father, this is this quick look at the adversity that Paul and Silas suffered at the hands of evil men and and, and Lord, we're just reminded of the things that we see around us and sometimes it feels hopeless and yet we know, Lord, you're not finished with this world. We're, we know that it, it seems to be spinning out of control sometimes and yet we also know that your plans are being worked out, your purposes are being accomplished and that your will is going to be done. Give us confidence and, and, and hope and uh, just the, the ability, Lord, to see things with a divine perspective because it's only there that we can make sense out of what we see here. Thank you, Lord, for each one here this morning. Pray that you would meet us where we're at, that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, that you would lose your spirit upon us, give us wisdom and understanding, and Lord, give us your heart toward the weak or the downtrodden or the lost or even people that are acting out in evil ways. Lord, let us be a light to those around us. We don't just want you, Lord, we need you. And we thank you that your will is to come alongside, to come into us and to, to work in us and to work through us as we engage with a lost and dying and really messed up world. We're grateful. We thank you in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen.